I think that we are on the precipice of a pretty frothy bull market. It's relatively early compared to the halvening cycle, yet Bitcoin has already touched 35k this week. And there's just this lineup of cultural, political, and economic indicators that seem incredibly bullish for Bitcoin. And I'm referring to the price, but you know, the price is just a signal of both excitement, emotion, yet also a fundamental utility of Bitcoin. And so if Bitcoin is very useful, if it does fulfill some important need for people, for the world, then it will be very valuable. And separating that fundamental value from the liquidity dynamics, the hype, the animal spirits, that's very difficult. And I won't attempt to do that. But I just want to point out that we're in a moment of wartime economy. If you were to look at the balance sheet of the United States government, you would say, wow, what war are you fighting? This is, you know, persistent deficits, incredibly high government spending to GDP, especially compared to tax receipts. This country must be engaged in some sort of existential struggle that justifies the obvious negative monetary consequences of these very large government policies. I mean, of course, there technically is no war. It's just that the US is in a state, and, and many first world countries are, where governments have become so accustomed to incredibly low interest rates that very high deficits seemed sustainable. And now they seem much less sustainable as interest rates have risen. And we're encountering scarcity at a global level in terms of commodities, in terms of energy, in terms of security. So on the one hand, you have this profligate government spending set up. On the other hand, you have your sort of traditional monies, which have experienced incredibly high inflation over the past two years, and the institution which safeguards and adds legitimacy to traditional money, central banks such as the Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank, they are incredibly untrustworthy or they just don't have credibility because these institutions are attempting to play with interest rates that affect the economic well-being of everyone in the world when the inflation measures that they're attempting to control have obviously turned over. And so this interest rate posturing is clearly some sort of jawboning mental game that central banks are playing with markets to try to preserve their credibility, whatever that means. It just seems incredibly childish and petty given the scope of global economic and political problems. And yet these are the defenders of the traditional financial system, these petty political actors like Jay Powell, who seem to be hiking interest rates and ignoring deflationary signs in the economy in pursuit of something, but it isn't the economic well-being of the average person. And so we see mainstream voices start to talk about Bitcoin as an alternative. BlackRock CEO Larry Fink was describing crypto. Of course, he meant Bitcoin as a flight to quality. That's very interesting. That's a big change from his previous statements. He's obviously talking his book, but that's part of Bitcoin. There are great financial incentives in Bitcoin. The moment you enter, you're very invested in it because of its high upside. Also, Kiyosaki, the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, is now talking about Bitcoin as a hedge against central bank risk. Of course, Kiyosaki is a pretty colorful history. You can read about it in the show notes. 
not exactly a figure without controversy, but that's the sort of figure that is a relatively early adopter of Bitcoin. Politically and socially and financially, there's a lot of upside to Bitcoin. So if you're more comfortable with risk, maybe you'll go for it. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on October 27th, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here alone this week because Chris is getting ready for our pilgrimage to El Salvador and the Adopting Bitcoin Conference, which is happening in two weeks. So it's just going to be your Bitcoin Dad. In today's show, we're going to discuss the dynamics of the U.S. Social Security Trust Fund drawing down, which is likely to affect U.S. Treasury market liquidity, and how this plays into a theme of fiscal dominance. I'll explain what that means. And there's a lovely Fed working paper on fiscal dominance, which basically is the cliff notes to how to force the regulated banking sector to absorb as much U.S. debt issuance as the government wants. And obviously, this would be a non-consensual purchasing of debt. There would be some coercion here because this paper anticipates a lot of debt and not a lot of demand for it. In privacy, the United States Treasury Department's FinCEN group is coming for CoinJoin. After they sanctioned the Tornado Cash blacklist, they are now coming after CoinJoin on Bitcoin and basically every other protocol. Financial privacy, the goal is to make it completely illegal, I believe. And so there's some interesting news and thought around that. In altcoins, a question has been asked, is there an alternative to the tried and tested layered scaling technique that has so far scaled Bitcoin to the Lightning Network, RSK, Liquid, and potentially other layer two and layer three solutions. Layered scaling is also the technology behind the internet in many ways. And there is an argument that something called a modular blockchain architecture could provide an alternative to layered scaling. So we will check that out, see if there's anything there. In Bitcoin education, Optech 274 focuses on the Lightning HTLC recycling attacks that we were discussing over the last two weeks. They have a much better explanation of how the attack works and some other interesting news. And then we have some feedback and boosts. And that's our show. Bitcoin critic Wolf Richter has an excellent article updating the Social Security Trust Fund and its current state. And he documents how the total income of the Social Security Trust Fund, and this is the fund that holds the money that will then be sent to United States Social Security recipients. Social Security is well, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a essentially retirement plan, public pension plan. And basically, if you work for a certain amount of time in the US, it, which is not very long, I think it's between, you know, maybe two and four years of, uh, of working, you qualify to receive from this fund. So actually, not all Americans do qualify for Social Security because some people who perhaps work in the informal sector and uh, don't file taxes and, and so therefore don't pay into Social Security do not qualify. So this is not exactly a uh, universal program in the US. But there's some interesting characteristics of this fund. One is that the Social Security Trust Fund is actually mandated to hold only US government debt. And so this is a place 
to store, to park U.S. government debt. And it becomes important if large amounts of debt are being issued and the market reaction to this debt is causing interest rates to rise, which then makes it difficult for the U.S. government to service this debt and, and it finds itself fiscally constrained. What Wolf observes is that the total income versus outgo of this fund has been positive up until around 2016, at which point the drawdown exceeds the income. And there are sort of two reasons for this. One is demographic, and that's the main driver. There's just a, a very large generation of people retiring, and they did not have too many children. And so the working generation is smaller. And this is kind of the demographic trap that most economies outside of, I think, India and some economies in Africa are experiencing. Basically, the baby boom generation is retiring, and their children did not have as many children. So they have fewer grandchildren, something like that. And this means that as workforces shrink, they are still paying into public pension programs that are supporting more and more pensioners. And these programs are all pay as you go. You know, they're not pre-funded. It's a transfer. When I pay into Social Security, the money's not going into an account that is earmarked for me. It's going into a pool that's immediately paid out to current Social Security recipients. And then when I retire, hopefully there's someone working, maybe my daughter, who's paying in, and then that goes to me. But obviously, this is unsustainable because the working populations are shrinking and the aging populations are increasing due to longer lifespans. Well, why is this interesting in a macro perspective? Basically, it's interesting because as this fund draws down, it sells treasuries. And so the balance of this fund has already peaked somewhere around 2018, something like that. And it's now dipping down. The peak balance was around 2.8 trillion US dollars. It's now dipping down towards 2.6. We're still at that plateau at the top. But what this means is that as we're stuck in a political reality where the US government cannot reduce deficits because it doesn't have the political consensus to agree on that, it means that more debt will be issued. That debt needs to find a place to live. Someone needs to buy it or else interest rates increase very quickly and the debt issuance could, could quite easily potentially turn into a currency crisis. One of the major buyers, one of the major force buyers, the Social Security Trust Fund, is becoming a force seller. And so I think that is something to look at. It's something to be concerned about in terms of future U.S. government fiscal sustainability, because this is a large source of demand for U.S. treasuries, and it's now turning into a seller. And this is a trend we've seen in that starting in around 2014 or so, China, which had previously been investing its trade surplus with the United States into U.S. government debt, decided to freeze their exposure. So they didn't really sell off U.S. government debt, but instead they, they didn't want to buy more and they just let their holdings roll over. And actually, this is interesting because this led to the Belt and Road Initiative, because I think a lot of U.S. analysis of the Belt and Road focuses on how it's kind of a challenger to the World Bank and other development investment programs that have been used to sort of create the 
neo-colonial extractive economy and extractive relationship that the quote-unquote first world has with the quote-unquote third world because a lot of world bank projects there's often a connection to the imf and basically they invest in resource extraction projects which helps orient developing economies towards resource extraction which means they'll never develop and these resources are then sent abroad to the more developed first world economies which then process them into useful goods and send them back and this is your typical colonial relationship this is the relationship that the u.s colonies uh, rejected with england and it continues through a, a new mechanism and china has attempted to create their own kind of neocolonial relationship with developing countries through the Belt and Road Program. But another side of that is that China needed somewhere to put their trade surpluses. They needed something to invest in. And at the scale of these surpluses, it was difficult to find politically safe investments. And so they took risk. They invested in Central Asia, in Africa, and those bets have not turned out well for them. The Belt and Road Program is uh, not getting a return on its investment. And uh, it looks like they've basically incinerated a lot of that investment. So the trend is less international demand for treasuries, less internal U.S. demand due to entities like the Social Security Trust Fund just because of their cash flow requirements and their mandate turning it from buyers to sellers. And the question is, who's going to buy this debt? Which leads us to a St. Louis Fed research paper by Charles W. Calamiris, Fiscal Dominance and the Return of Zero Interest Bank Reserve Requirements. The abstract is pretty interesting. As a matter of arithmetic, the trends of U.S. government debt and deficits will eventually result in an outrageously high government debt to GDP ratio. I think we're already there, but okay. When exactly will the U.S. hit the constraints of infeasibility and how exactly will policy adjust to it? This article considers fiscal dominance, which is the possibility that accumulating government debt and deficits can produce increases in inflation that dominate central bank intentions to keep inflation low. I think this is a very simplistic understanding of the relationship between the federal government and the central bank. On the one hand, the central bank is supposed to keep inflation low. That's part of its mandate. On the other hand, the majority of the relationship between the U.S. central bank and the federal government was not independent over the past, let's say, 150 years. And so there are periods when the purpose of the central bank is actually to enable the government to spend perhaps try to contain the inflation, but certainly not create impediments for the federal government to pursue an inflationary policy. The author defines the inflation tax base as zero interest debt. And so this article is really an exploration of how to increase the amount of zero interest debt, how to increase the inflation tax base, because currently U.S. Citizens and corporates can hide from inflation tax by purchasing interest-bearing securities, investing in stocks, things like that, with the assumption that the stock price increases greater than the rate of inflation. And so if you were in an inflation taxation, a fiscal dominance situation, then how exactly would you increase the inflation tax base? 
And the answer is you would essentially stop paying interest on reserves to banks. You would require banks to hold large amounts of zero interest reserves. You might require them to hold government debt that is uh, yielding a non-market yield. One thing that's kind of interesting about this paper is that it's a mix of policy ideas, I would say bad ideas, ideas that are likely to be disadvantageous to regular people with a lot of perhaps um, naivete, because the author writes about how there might be a failed US debt auction, because if the market, whatever that means, is skeptical that the US government is able to service a very high debt load, there may be treasury debt auctions where there are no bids, no one wants to buy the debt, or they want to buy it at such a discount that the effective interest rate is just completely crazy. So first of all, I think that this is incredibly unlikely because US government debt auctions are not sort of free market operations. They're bid on by primary dealers who are kind of required to buy the debt with the understanding that if they hold their nose and buy US government debt that they don't really want and they don't really trust, the Federal Reserve will turn around and buy it from them in two weeks. And I guess the question in that situation is, could something bad happen in two weeks where that is a really bad deal for the primary broker, primary dealer who purchases that debt? That's a question. This is pretty interesting, not necessarily because the specific recommendations on how to increase the inflation tax on individuals are, you know, fun reading, but rather that this question of fiscal sustainability is in the zeitgeist. It's being thought about at the central bank level. And I mean, honestly, I just can't believe they published this thing. If I were not paying attention to sort of the current fiscal and monetary environment, and I just saw this article, I'd be freaking out. I'd be thinking, gosh, is is this government like against my own interests? And, and I think in some respects, yes, it is. FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, is part of the U.S. Treasury, and they have published a notice of a new rulemaking that would target mixing of convertible virtual currencies. From a Bitcoin perspective, this is CoinJoin. And this comes at the same time as Elizabeth Warren's latest attack on crypto, which uses the tragedy of the Hamas terrorist attacks in Israel as fodder for her agenda of just banning cryptocurrency seems to be her goal. There's a, a sub story there. A lot of the data in her letter that was signed by uh, quite a few congressmen or maybe senators was uh, just completely incorrect. And actually, Chainalysis has spoken out about her use of their research to draw incorrect conclusions. So that's kind of interesting. Basically, FinCEN tried to kill Tornado Cash and mostly succeeded in discouraging people from participating in that. And the trigger at that point was the use of Tornado Cash by the North Korean Lazarus Group, because there's this fear that the Lazarus Group and any group raising funds for North Korea, that money is going to go into their nuclear program. So why CoinJoin on Bitcoin? Well, basically, there's not a huge amount of CoinJoin on Bitcoin. There's not a lot of privacy on Bitcoin. It's uh, you know, probably not being used for terrorism and too much criminal activity because of the poor privacy characteristics of Bitcoin. But 
Vincent's coming after it. And what they are suggesting is pretty scary. Basically, they want any financial institution that interacts with public blockchains to report automatically any transactions that have any relation to suspected mixing or privacy technology. The definition of a mixer is really bad. Any person, group, service, code, tool, or function that facilitates cryptocurrency mixing, I mean, that could be a node operator. That could be an open source developer who writes code. You know, this is a bad precedent because if someone writes code and then that's used to perform mixing under vague rulemakings like this, someone who just wrote a couple lines of code and put it on the internet could be guilty of a financial crime. That's crazy. That could really have some terrible unforeseen consequences on free speech and uh, creative collaboration on things like open source software. Essentially, these rules are so broad, they would allow FinCEN to just arbitrarily capture almost any activity on the blockchain and require any regulated business to act as a deputy and perform a privacy attack on anyone involved in the transaction. I mean, it's really, really bad. It's so bad that I'd have to say, if you were planning on any kind of broad crackdown on private Bitcoin or cryptocurrency ownership, this is what you would do first. So it's pretty scary. It is just one of many privacy attacks on Bitcoin, and it is ongoing. So we'll see how that how that goes. On a positive side, Coin Center, which is a crypto advocacy group based in Washington, D.C., they have filed a motion to halt the Internal Revenue Service, the IRS, the U.S. tax authorities, John Doe summons against cryptocurrency exchanges that are basically these very broad requests for all user data. Coin Center makes the argument that these requests are too broad, they need to be more targeted, the IRS doesn't have the right to the financial data of anyone who's ever used cryptocurrency. They have to follow a process and not just hoover up all the financial data in the world and then go on a fishing expedition to see if they can catch someone for unreported capital gains or something like that. It's a very reasonable motion. I wish Coin Center luck in their work. I would say donate to Coin Center, but they're pretty well funded by a bunch of coin projects. So I, I think they're okay, frankly. Now, I probably should wait for Chris for the blockchain modularity thesis because his experience with the development of Linux and networking technology over the past 30 years would be really useful here. But I'll just introduce the idea and then we'll see if Chris has some, some thoughts next week. There's this thing called the blockchain trilemma. And the idea is that every blockchain is trying to achieve three things. Security, which generally means transaction immutability. Decentralization, we don't want this thing being run on a single server that can be shut down. So we want several servers. You know, how many servers? That's a question. Because as you decentralize, you know, consensus becomes difficult. And then you want scalability. You want to be able to do transactions for, uh, you know, the right price, not too expensive, you know, not too limited in terms of its uh, uh, throughput. If you use Bitcoin as your starting point, it turns out that any changes to Bitcoin reduce one of these three legs of the blockchain trilemma. Basically, Satoshi somehow, and then 
developers who came after him have gotten Bitcoin to the place where it kind of hits the sweet spot of the blockchain trilemma. It's pretty decentralized. It's got great security and scalability as uh, is a question mark. And that, and you know, and if you try to increase scalability with Bitcoin, you reduce decentralization and security very quickly. And as a result, because we don't want to mess around with the base chain too much, because Bitcoin's you know just works in most situations, we've adopted a layered scaling approach. So we take the layer one blockchain and then we build things on top of it that allow more throughput or more functionality. And this is an approach that was taken with networking and the internet. There's this thing called the OSI model, which you know is just this layered approach to how the internet works. You've got like the transport layer, the data layer, yada, yada. And basically the idea is that uh, most applications don't need all the features and applications that do need more assurances and more features, they drop down to a lower, more expensive level. But a lot of stuff can happen at a very high level, you know, a couple layers up uh, above the base protocol. And this, there's a lot of scaling there, it's cheaper, and there are trade offs, you know, maybe it's not as uh, robust, maybe it's not as secure or something. Well, there is a another idea, it's called the blockchain modularity thesis. And the idea is that a blockchain has four core functions, execution, so this is the state transition function, defining transactions and deploying them. There's settlement, which verifies the validity of a transaction, data availability, the record keeping of a blockchain, and consensus. This is the nodes deciding which order of transactions in a block and which blocks are the correct ones. And a Bitcoin node does all four of these things. So does an Ethereum node. And so in this paper, these are referred to as monolithic blockchains. And the idea of the modular blockchain thesis is that you can actually offload these functions to separate layers. And how would that work in practice? Well, not to be too dismissive, the answer is lots and lots of middlemen. Blockchain modularity means that you have specialized entities that are going to run different parts of the blockchain stack. And they they kind of all have to work together. They kind of all have to trust each other a little. They're all permissioned. There's a centralized permission model here. You can't just necessarily join this network. You have to be invited in. So I'll just say that this is a complete non-starter from a Bitcoin perspective. This is something that could only work in kind of a regulated financial business something environment. I don't think this is particularly interesting, but I think that there's a lot of demand for non-Bitcoin crypto. And I think that the main source of this demand is the desire for tokens to pump and dump. And the problem is, with every cycle, we discredit a narrative around points. First, there was the idea that there was going to be a token for everything. The world was going to be made up of laundry tokens. You'd use a token for your food delivery, a token for your scooter rental, a token for your dentist. And that was clearly bull****. It was clearly wrong. It didn't work out. All of those tokens went to zero. Then there was the concept of layer one 
utility throughput blockchains, which is kind of similar to the tokens for everything. But you have things like Solana and Ethereum that are basically platforms for smart contracts. And these blockchains and the demand for their tokens was driven by the decentralized finance apps built on top of them, the automated market makers, things like that. And again, these all disappeared. They went to zero. It was a rinse and repeat. You know, basically VC money was just flowing from chain to chain, pumping and dumping onto the next chain. Nothing survived really, except maybe Solana, which is kind of limping along, I guess. And now we have a new narrative, modular blockchains, data availability, execution layer. This, I think, is probably going to be a new narrative around a new generation of coins that are all going to be VC backed, they're going to raise money, they're going to pre-sell tokens, and they're going to dump them on retail in the next two years. Stay tuned. That's my view. And the Bitcoin Dad Pod is brought to you by Jupiter Broadcasting. Jupiter Broadcasting is my co-host Chris Fisher's podcasting network that provides a whole bunch of really cool Linux and technology-focused podcasts, such as Self-Hosted, a show about self-hosting your own IT infrastructure, like a Bitcoin node, or Home Assistant, or a media server, all sorts of cool ideas there. There's also Coder Radio, where Chris sits down with co-host Michael Dominic uh, of The Mad Botter, who is a uh, yeah professional software developer with strong opinions who likes strong drinks. It's a great listen. Lots of fun. Check it all out. JupiterBroadcasting.com. Now, Bitcoin Optech 274 is mostly about the replacement cycling vulnerability in Lightning. And again, this is sort of hard to explain because you have to understand exactly what a hash time lock contract is. But I think the TLDR is if you are a routing node, you might be vulnerable to this attack. If you are not a routing node, you are not vulnerable to this attack. And the way it works is the attacker has to be both downstream of the target node and also the next connection from the target node. So they need to have two lightning nodes. And so what they do, so the attacker sends a payment probably to themselves and the last hop to their second node is via the target. So so the attacker is Mallory, the target is Bob. Mallory A sends a payment, it goes to X, it goes to Y, it goes to Z, it goes to Bob, and then it goes to Mallory B. And the way that the Lightning Protocol works is there are these sort of HTLCs that are wrapped. And the idea is that if I send an HTLC to you, and then you forward it, it to Bob, that you know they can only be spent atomically. You know, if Bob doesn't spend his HTLC, you can't spend yours, I can't spend mine, you know, like there's a chain here. So the gist of this attack is that the chain is broken. What Mallory does is once her second node, Mallory B, gets the payment from Bob, the HTLC is forwarded, Mallory A then replaces a transaction in the mempool that invalidates Bob's HTLC that he received, but he's already sent one to Mallory B. And so Mallory B goes ahead and spends that HTLC and Bob can't spend the previous HTLC. Well, why doesn't Bob realize and you know do something? The answer is it's pretty complicated. Mallory has to eclipse attack Bob so he doesn't he doesn't uh, realize what's going on. He doesn't see that Mallory's first HTLC has been removed from the mempool. Minor fees have to be paid, so this is an active attack. And again, this is something that is really only going to affect routing nodes. So I don't think that individual node runners have to worry too much. Probably just want to keep 
Lightning updated. And I thought this was kind of interesting because it is not a bug. This is just how Lightning works. And it took some time to realize that behavior like this is possible given the parameters of the Lightning protocol. The mitigations that routing nodes are probably enacting right now will increase the cost of this attack on attackers, but they won't eliminate it. And I think that's kind of a warning about new protocols and new layers. You are going to lose some security compared to the Bitcoin base chain. And this is a good example of that. This also might be a sign of Lightning's maturity. As protocols mature, they ossify. Then it's discovered there are vulnerabilities that are hard to mitigate, but now everyone's using it. It's hard to change. We can't just rewrite the whole thing now. What do we do? And a good example is the HTTPD2 flooding attack. You know, basically, there is a change to HTTP that I think uh, Google pushed for years ago, and it made a lot of sense. It was a way to send more data through a single connection, and that happened or that was needed just as mobile phones and the sort of demand for data started to explode. So the protocol need to be made more efficient. But it turns out it's also great for DDoS. And that was discovered just recently. And there's, you know, nothing you can really do. It's a protocol level vulnerability. So we'll see how that pans out. There's also some news of a bug that was discovered in Bitcoin Core. There's a function called hash serialize2, which serializes and hashes the Bitcoin UTXO set. It's thought that this was never really used or needed, but there's a new proposal called assume UTXO, or well, it's a feature. It's actually planned for the next major version of Bitcoin Core. And it turned out that some code in the Bitcoin code base was just not doing what it was supposed to. And they this bug has been found and it's going to be fixed. But if you have built software relying on this bug, you might run into problems. So check out Bitcoin Optech to learn about that. There are also some new Bitcoin Core releases. 25.1 is a maintenance release containing some bug fixes. 24.2, Bitcoin Core version 24 is still being maintained, also contains some bug fixes. And Bitcoin Core 26-0RC1, it's a release candidate for the next full release of Bitcoin Core. So you can run that and check it out if you want to participate in the bug finding process. Now on to feedback. Remember, you can get in touch with the show, BitcoinDadPod at ProtonMail.com. I am sometimes on WeaponX at, at BitcoinDadPod. There is also a show Matrix channel where most of the conversation happens. Check out the show notes. And we got an email from Craig. This was for Chris. I'll respond for him. Hey, Chris, I heard you say you're getting ready to go to El Salvador. I've been considering taking my son to investigate whether it's a place we would like to move. I'd be interested in what you find and any suggestions on travel and places to consider. Love the show. Well, Craig, living outside of the U.S. is a great hack if you are looking for a lower cost of living. El Salvador is a pretty imperfect place. There is still a lot of crime relative to almost any place in the U.S., even though things uh, seem to have improved uh, quite a bit in the last few years. So we will be checking it out again, but uh, you always want to keep a critical eye on stuff like this. And we had some boosts. Remember, this is a listener-supported show, so boost in to ask questions and also show your support. And our baller boost of the week comes from at Petar, who sent in 50,000 sats. 
with the message El Salvador Beverage Boost, safe travels. Well, thank you, Patar. We will happily drink those 50,000 sats. Ahanaga is our other baller booster with 40,000 sats who sent in some question marks. I'm also puzzled by that boost. Thank you very much, Ahanaga. We also received nearly 10,000 sats, 9,999 sats from Withers. Hey guys, I've really been enjoying the show. I guess Jupiter Broadcasting wasn't sending me down enough rabbit holes. So now I have Bitcoin. Another Jupiter Broadcasting listener. Do either of you use metal plates to save your seed phrases? Any suggestions? So I personally do not. I think that using uh, that sort of high grade water resistant paper, I can't remember what the name is. It's called like, you know, Dura paper or Tefla Nex or something. I use that. I think that's sufficient. Jameson Lop has a website with a lot of useful things on there. And he has been testing seed backup plates for years, you know, basically putting a seed onto them and then throwing it into a furnace, blasting it with a blowtorch, dropping it in acid. I mean, he does crazy stuff to it. So if you want to get the real data, go to Jameson Lop's blog and uh, see what he's been doing. At Halleck sends in 10,000 sats. I'm for the macro coverage. I find it to be some of my favorite segments. Well, thank you, at Halleck. We had asked our community what they liked hearing, and we got some responses. So that's very helpful. Oppie1984 sent in 4,000 sats. When it comes to trying to talk friends out of ship coins, I've given up. I have a coworker who bought a ship coin and is now over $500 into it. When I told him it was a rug pull and he'd be better off putting his money in Bitcoin, his answer was, I'm just having fun. And now I can say I own 1 million of something. I said, you do you. Just don't invest more than you can afford to lose Then change the subject. Some people insist on learning the hard way. And sometimes you have to let them. Well, I agree entirely, Oppie. Personally, I don't think there's an easy way. I think there's only the hard way. And I was never a shipcoiner, but I've lost more Bitcoin than I will ever have. So, you know, that's how I learned. <laughs> uh. We received 5,000 sats from Barn Miner. That's a very descriptive name. I hope your barn is uh, fireproof. Those mining rigs can get quite hot. Always enjoy it, guys. Also been getting me motosted with Linux and self-hosting things other than Bitcoin. Well, I don't know what motosted is, but I guess interested, perhaps? I think that Bitcoin, self-hosting, and Linux go together like fine wine and cheese or peanut butter and jelly. I mean, chef's kiss, it's a great combo. Bitcoin got me interested in self-hosting and Linux. So, you know, you can do it in any order, frankly. Open source accountant sent us in 2000 sats. I'm curious if you guys know about any conversations relating to any potential tax implications related to splits on Lightning. I'm currently looking into if the IRS sees it as a distribution of company assets since the initial payment is directed typically to a single entity, but with the knowledge that it will be distributed based on the desires of the original recipient. Frankly, open source accountant, I think you're the authority here, potentially. I don't think there has been much research or writing about the tax implications of very small lightning payments. I think that because the payments are so small, the practical approach is this is too small to be important or interesting to the IRS at this point. That obviously may change in the future. But please continue your research, write about it, and let us know because we'd love to read it out and you know public or publicize it on the show if you have any conclusions or thoughts on the subject. 
Hal was right sent in 2100 sats. Dhruv Bansal has a three-part article on what Bitcoin would look like if expanded to the entire solar system. Highly recommend. And I'll leave the link in the show notes. Really interesting. It's like a mix of sci-fi and Bitcoin. There's a great chart, Earth's hash horizon. The TLDR is that Mars is too far away to mine on the same chain as Earth. So Mars would probably need its own coin if they wanted to have a decentralized ledger cryptocurrency as their economy. We also received some boosts under our 2000 sat cutoff limit. Thank you so much for sending in. We don't read them on the show, but we read everything we get and we appreciate the support and your thoughts. Remember, this is a value for value show. If you get some value from the show, please consider sending a boost. Hearing from you means a lot to us. You can easily send a boost via the Podcast Index webpage. No need to upgrade your podcast app. All you do is you install Albi, you fund it somehow with Bitcoin. If you don't know how to get Bitcoin, contact me on Matrix and I'll send you some. Then you find the Bitcoin dad pod on the podcast index and you boost right there from the page using Albi. You can send a message. It's super cool. You can also send in a reoccurring or one-off lightning boost using Chris and my Albi addresses. Thank you so much for listening and boosting in. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on October 27th, 2023. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here myself this week. No Chris. See you next time.